reflecting the views of the United States government. This is VOA News. I'm Tommy McNeil. Israel and Hamas played down chances of an imminent breakthrough in talks with a ceasefire in Gaza. Their comments follow remarks by U.S. President Joe Biden, who said Israel has agreed to pause its offensive during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan if a deal is reached to release some hostages held by the militants. The president's remarks came on the eve of the Michigan primary, where he faces pressure from the state's large Arab-American population over his staunch support for Israel's offensive. Biden said his comments reflected his optimism for a deal, not that all the remaining hurdles had been overcome. A rocket has exploded off the side of a ship traveling through the Red Sea off the coast of Yemen. It is the latest suspected attack to be carried out by Yemen's Houthi rebels. The attack Tuesday night comes as the Houthis continue a series of assaults at sea over Israel's war in Hamas or on Hamas and the Gaza Strip, and as the U.S. and its allies launch airstrikes trying to stop them. The Houthis have not yet claimed the attack off of data, a port they hold. They typically take several hours to claim their assaults. Congressional leaders emerged from an intense Oval meeting with President Joe Biden, speaking optimistically about the prospects for avoiding a partial government shutdown beginning this weekend. However, things are still at a crossroads on assistance for Ukraine and Israel, as the president and others in the meeting urgently warned House Speaker Mike Johnson of the grave consequences of delay. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says those in the meeting told Johnson, get it done. But Johnson emerged from the meeting without mentioning Ukraine. He said the first priority of the country is our border and making it secure. Biden hosted Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell in the office, Oval Office with Republican House Senator, House Speaker Johnson. This is VOA News. President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump have won the Michigan primaries, further solidifying the all but certain rematch between the two men. Still, the results are highlighting some of their biggest political vulnerabilities ahead of the November general election. A vigorous, uncommitted campaign organized by activists disillusioned with Biden's handling of the war in Gaza far surpassed the 10,000 vote goal set by organizers. As for Trump, he has now swept the first five states on the Republican primary council. Calendar, but Trump continues to struggle with some influential voter blocs who have favored former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley in previous contests. Rapidly expanding Texas wildfires fueled by surging winds have prompted evacuation orders for several towns and shut down a nuclear facility in the state's rural panhandle. The Texas A&M Forest Service said Tuesday that the largest fire had already burned nearly 400 square miles. It remains 0% contained as of Tuesday afternoon. The Smokehouse Creek fire has more than doubled in its size since it sparked on Monday. An evacuation order was issued for Canadian, uh, for Canadian a town of some 2,000, about 100 miles northeast of Amarillo, as well as other towns. Nuclear plant Pantex says it shut down as a wildfire raged near that facility. The killing of a nursing student in the Georgia has become an issue in the 2024 presidential campaign. The suspect in last week's slaying of Lakin Riley is a Venezuelan man who entered the U.S. illegally and was followed to state to pursue his immigration case. Former President Donald Trump blamed President Joe Biden and his border policies for the Augusta University student's fatal beating. 
He and other Republicans have suggested migrants are committing crimes more often than U.S. citizens, even though the evidence does not back up the claims. Democrats have been more muted. Many express sorrow for Riley's death. Some have accused Trump of exploiting a tragedy and using xenophobic rhetoric for political gain. Two mayoral hopefuls in the Mexican city of Mauricio have been gunned down within hours of each other as experts warned the June 2nd national elections could be the country's most violent on record. The widening control of drug cartels in Mexico has been described as a threat. During the last nationwide election in 2021, about three dozen candidates were killed. Campaigning officially began Friday. The western state has been particularly hard hit by gang turf wars. One watchdog says that it's likely that the biggest elections in history will also suffer the biggest attacks from organized crime. More at VOANews.com. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, February 28th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Burundi says nine of its citizens were killed this week by a rebel group operating inside DRC. The government spokesperson Jerome Nyonzima says that among those who were killed include six women. Kenya's military government names a new prime minister. Uganda plans to relocate its only maximum security prison to give way to a luxury five-star hotel. A judge in Zimbabwe convicts an opposition politician for insulting a Russian national four years ago. What I can say is that it's another outrage for the nation of Zimbabwe, another embarrassment, a huge indictment on our country in general and our judiciary in particular. And Kenyan communities embrace alternative crops to ease human-wildlife conflict. Those stories plus our Black History Month presentation are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Burundi says nine of its nationals were killed this week after an attack launched by the Red Tabara rebel group in Burundi's Bombaza province. Burundi continues to blame Rwanda for supporting the rebel group, resulting in worsening relations between the two countries. Moses Aviavrimana reports. It was on Sunday night when the mourners in Bubanza province in the northwestern part of Burundi were attacked by Red Tabara. The armed group, which infiltrated from neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo, killed nine people, according to the Burundi government. The government spokesperson Jerome Nyonzima says that among those who were killed include six women. He says the government of Burundi further deplores the behavior of Rwanda, which maintains, trains, and arms the terrorist group Redi Tawara, which has continued to carry out attacks and targeting innocent civilians, and that the government demands the extradition of the masterminds of the terrorist group Redi Tawara, which is sheltered by Rwanda. Burundi relations with the neighboring Rwanda have deteriorated since 2015 when Bujumbura accused Kigali of supporting and sheltering the 2015 failed coup plotters. 
allegations that Rwanda has repeatedly denied. Rwandan government spokesperson did not respond to our request for a reaction to the Burundi claims, but Kigali had earlier dismissed the allegations made by Bujumbura. Dr. Gerard Siranda is the chairman of the Committee of Regional Affairs and Conflict Resolution in the East African Parliament. First solution now is continuous engagement, continuous speaking together without delegating people, but the heads of state within the partner states must give attention to the issues within the community. Sometimes you think they have left a lot of issues with the council because at the end of the day, whatever decision that they do just continue to impede the growth of this community. Tensions between Burundi and Rwanda has continued to impact citizens of both countries after Burundi in January decided to close its borders with neighboring Rwanda. The closure came a few weeks after the Tabara rebel group killed 20 people in December. Last week, the South Sudan President Salva Kiir, who is the current chairman of the East African Community Heads of State Summit, visited the two countries to help de-escalate tension. Despite the escalating conflict between Burundi and Rwanda over the past nine years, East African Community is yet to find any mechanism to bring the two together to ease tensions. Moses Aviarimana for VOA Africa. Guinea's military government has named a new prime minister a week after junta leader Mamadi Dumbuya abruptly dissolved the government. According to Reuters, the new prime minister is Mamadou Areba. His appointment comes as Guineans have this week been protesting economic hardships and ineffective government policies. Dauda Mohamed Kamara is the editor-in-chief at Aspar's FM. He tells me the new Prime Minister, Ari Ba, is not new to the Guinean political scene. The Prime Minister is uh, Bawuri, is a leader, a political leader in Guinea. And it was, let me say, to the great surprise of Guinea that the, the Prime Minister Bawuri is coming today just to receive him. And Bawuri is somebody who is uh, the, uh, let me say, the last generation of Alpha Conde, Bamamadou, and uh, Stelou Dalens. Bawuri is somebody who is also an old minister of reconciliation in Guinea. He is the one who was the member of UFDG, a political leader led today by uh, Stelou Dalens Diallo. He's not new in politics, he's uh, an old school man of politics in Guinea. So when you say his appointment was a big surprise to Guineans, so what, what, what do you mean? I just mean that because uh, people are, we are not spending now Bowie to come. It's true that Bowie was taking some position in favor of this uh, CNFD, but uh, for the opinion to expect that Bowie is the one who is coming, would be the prime minister after Bernard Gumu, as you know, it one week, more than one week ago now, the, the government was dissolved. It is a great surprise. So, Mamadou Ba is taken over as prime minister. Do you think his appointment will make a difference, particularly at this time 
when Guineans are protesting in the streets about many things, including economic hardships? Maybe yes, because the man is a, an economist and also a political leader. To say that uh, is uh, appointing with um, take to protest for the moment, no, there's no protest, and we are just waiting until tomorrow morning because it's now already 10 p.m. in Guinea. We are just waiting until tomorrow to hear what uh, other political leaders are uh, saying as analyzed this appointing. There was a protest about many things during this week. People were protesting. They were demanding the release of uh, the uh, journalist. Yes, there was protest. Yes, of course. Yes, the, because since, since yesterday, Monday, when the strike started, there was a protest until today. Not so outside in the, in the in the capital city, but uh, in the Ratsuma, starting from Amdalai to Kagbele, boys we are protesting against uh, this situation and asking also the release of Secretary Jamal Pendesa, Secretary General of uh, FPPJ. Dawida Mohamed Kamara is the editor-in-chief at Aspart FM. He was speaking with us from Guinea's capital, Conakry. A judge in Zimbabwe has convicted an opposition politician for insulting a Russian national in 2020. The judge also fined Tendai Beatty US $300 and said he could go to jail for three months if he fails to pay the amount. Tendai Ruben Mfana is a Zimbabwe social justice advocate and writer. He tells me the verdict is an embarrassment because it is not a criminal offense under Zimbabwe law to insult someone. What I can say is that it's another outrage for the nation of Zimbabwe, another embarrassment, a huge indictment on our country in general and our judiciary in particular. How can someone be jailed to six months imprisonment or with the option of a fine of 300 US dollars simply for insulting someone. We need to remember what happened in 2020. That is four years ago. Tendai Beatty encountered this lady. She's a Russian lady who's uh, working in Zimbabwe at the magistrate's courts in Zimbabwe. They had an altercation, and Tendai Beatty ended up calling her stupid. Yes, that's not acceptable at all, but that can never be a crime in any form, especially in Zimbabwe. It's not a criminal offense to call someone stupid. <laughs> but I think I think the judge uh, in ruling on this case, uh, in giving that suspended sentence, took note of the fact that uh, BT did apologize, and therefore, don't you think the punishment um, is fair? Not at all. It's, it's not fair. He shouldn't be punished at all. Let's remember this, James. This is a court of law, which is supposed to judge issues according with the law. What law is there in Zimbabwe that criminalizes insulting someone? If she had been assaulted, if BT had laid his hands on her, that would have been a totally different issue. But insulting someone as opposed to assaulting them is totally different. The judge should have just thrown this case out four years ago. Question. So um, if you say it's not fair, what is BT's lawyer, or what is BT, who himself is a lawyer, what is he planning on doing? Yes, he's going to file an in in appeal with a higher court because 
they are also standing on what I've been saying, that, no, it's unfair. Really, what the magistrate court ruled is unfair. There's no law that we can even think about that will say, how can you find someone guilty of insulting someone? So, Bitti's lawyer is going to take the issue to a higher court. I want to ask, Bitti is supposed to be one of the leaders of the newly reorganized Citizens Coalition for Change. That's the opposition. What is the opposition saying about the sentencing? So far, the only comments that I've uh, come across, they're also outraged. But as you understand that the, the triple C, the opposition now, it's in disarray. So we can only expect a comment from the faction that is Wolf Mengube, Tendai Biti, and Jacob Mafume. The others, uh, I don't expect them to comment at all. You know, they might actually be celebrating wherever they are and even wish that they had actually been jailed. Zimbabwe's social justice advocate and writer, he was speaking with us from the capital, Horare. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, February 28th. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uganda is planning to relocate its only maximum security prison to give way to a luxury five-star hotel. Luzera Maximum Security Prison, located near the capital Kampala, houses both men and women. Local media report the facility will be turned into a five-star hotel by the Chinese Tian Tang Group. Citing a letter by President Yoweri Museveni, Ugandan political analyst Charles Mwanguya Mpagi tells viewers Douglas Mpoga that uh, there is a concern about the government practice of giving away public land to private investors. It's been a mixed reaction. There are people who believe that the relocation is uh, okay happening at this time, but the question is, this is the only national security prison that you have in the country and very close to the city center, less than 10 kilometers out of the city center. And the question is, why Luzira Maximum Security Prison? You have a huge shoreline along Lake Victoria and areas that are accessible where a beautiful hotel facility can be developed. Why are you giving away Luzira Maximum Security Prison? With its history, its historical significance, and the need for relocation and the justification for having located the maximum security prison there. So there are people questioning what the rationale is, and many people are saying, are you just looking at uh, another land giveaway, like has happened to other public lands, or are you doing it for a genuinely good reason? And we understand it's being uh, given to a Chinese investor, is that correct? Yes, in May 2022, that's when the president wrote to the Minister for Internal Affairs and said uh, he had been approached by the director of Tian Tiang Group. This is a Chinese company that's been involved in the manufacture of uh, steel. It's involved in the manufacture of mattresses and many other things. And I think running some hotels in town already. Uh, he said they had approached him and said they were interested in developing a five-star hotel on the land currently occupied by Luzira Maximum Security Prison and that they would relocate or rebuild the prison at any other site at their own cost. And that's what the president wrote to the Minister for Internal Affairs. And the minister wrote back 
and uh, he was inviting a discussion on how uh, this relocation happened. So in the mind of government, it appears like it's a decision made. It's not even just a consultation. And what uh, the people's reaction to a prime land being given out to foreign investors, especially Chinese farms, without their input, the people's input? There's been a lot of debate in Uganda, not just about this one, and this one is just adding to a discussion that's been going on in the country. They call it, there is a word, they call it a land bonanza. Government is giving away prime public land. Now, the question sometimes that arises is, are you actually giving it to a genuine, legitimate foreign or local investor, or are these being used as a front for government officials to get uh, a hold onto these uh, prime pieces of public land themselves? And, and, and that is at the center of the discussion over uh, this latest revelation about uh, the Luzera land. Some people have complained also about the giveaway of uh, wetlands, for instance. As many uh, of the factories run by especially Chinese, to some extent Indian, where they have built factories, they have built them in wetlands, which is a direct contradiction to government's commitment to fighting uh, wetland degradation across the country. But there have also been other giveaways of uh, prime public land. Some of your listeners might remember a place where the Uganda Broadcasting Corporation, the National Radio and National Television, were located on uh, a prime hill on Nakasero, in Nakasero, just near the State Lodge. That was given away. You have uh, places like uh, Shimoni Teacher Training College and Demonstration School. That was given away also apparently to build a hotel. Lots of lands for schools, both second and primary. Playgrounds have been given away apparently for investment, but the question has been what quality of investment has come there, um, how effective has it been, where is the value for money? And accounting for that has been uh, extremely difficult. Political analyst Charles Mguanya Mpagi, he spoke with uh, my colleague Douglas Mpuga from Kampala, Uganda. Kenyan communities near Sabo National Park are seeing a rise in human-wildlife conflict impacting their lives and their income. Communities near the park complain of animal attacks and crop destruction exacerbating poverty. The group Five Talents Kenya is helping the affected communities to reduce their conflicts, in part by introducing alternative crops that animals are less likely to eat. Mohamed Yusuf reports. In mid-2023, Kenya's Ministry of Tourism and Wildlife dispersed $6.2 million as compensation to victims of human-wildlife conflict, covering deaths, injuries and crop and livestock losses. According to the Kenyan Wildlife Service, the government faces additional pending claims of more than $39 million due to human-wildlife conflicts. Obadia Mwakireti, a farmer in Taita Taveta County, has lost maize and sorghum crops to elephants and other animals from Savo National Park. To survive, the 52-year-old farmer shifted to planting alternative crops. I've lost a lot of money farming these other crops and we were not being compensated for our loss other than getting sorry. But now it is better. I am farming sunflowers. I harvest and press the oil and sell it, he says. Other farmers have turned to growing sunflowers and green gram and surrounding their fields with thick K-apple hedges to deter animal intrusion. Kenya's population growth has exacerbated human-wildlife conflicts aggravated by the lack of a comprehensive land use policy. 
Five Talents Kenya, working with the U.S. Agency for International Development, has initiated programs supporting communities near Savo National Park. Peter Mugendi, the organization's head, says the group is targeting thousands of individuals from Kitui, Kmakweni and Taita Taveta counties with programs aimed at reducing tension between communities and wildlife and improving people's income. The 3,600 individuals will first and foremost all be members of Thriving Accumulated Savings and Credit Association. Then they will have had their capacity built on issues of climate smart agriculture. They'll have engaged in these activities. They will also be um, linked to markets and that they are part of uh, their leadership is part of the, the Savo conservation area that are contributing to uh, policy matters on conservation. Philip Murudi is vice president of conservation science and planning at the African Wildlife Foundation. He says there is a pressing need to manage the conflicts between communities and animals. So the issue is how can we live with wildlife positively? And I think uh, although it's a major issue, the battle is not lost. We have to be intentional in managing that wildlife, so the conflict situation, so that uh, people do not suffer. Reducing human-wildlife conflict is a crucial matter for communities living near national parks. According to available data, between 2017 and 2020, 388 Kenyans were killed by wild animals and nearly 2,100 were injured. Mohamed Yusuf, VOA News, Nairobi. Political crisis talks called by Senegal's President Macky Sall on Tuesday reached a broad consensus that the presidential vote he postponed could not be held before his mandate ends on April 2nd. Multiple participants told the French news agency, the AFP. President Sall's two-day national dialogue aimed at setting a date for the delayed election also advocated the head of state remain in office beyond the end of his term and until his successor is installed. The conclusions go firmly against the view of a widespread political and civic movement which is demanding the poll be held before April 2nd. The traditionally stable West African country is grappling with its worst political crisis in decades after President Sall's last-minute deferral of the February 25 election. It is time now for our Black History Month and African History presentation for today, February 28th. On this day, 1932, Rachel Sparks, a black man, invented the automatic gear shift. Also on this day, 1859, the Arkansas legislature required free blacks to choose between leaving the state of Arkansas or being sent back into slavery. On this day, 1990, Nigerian-born Philip Emingwale was awarded the Gordon Bell Prize for solving one of the 20 most difficult problems in the computer field. Also on this day, 1984, the lead singer Michael Jackson won eight Grammy Awards. His album Thriller broke all sales records and remained one of the top money-making albums of all time. 
And today in Black History, we want to tell you about an African-American holiday celebration called Kwanzaa. It is held December 26th through January 1st. The seven-day celebration encourages people to think about their African roots as well as their lives in present-day America. Kwanzaa is a Swahili word, which means the first fruits. It is based on African festivals. It was started in 1966 by Molana Ronkranka, a professor, writer, and leader in the Black struggle. On this day in African history, 1948, Sergeant Cornelius Ajete became the first martyr for Ghanaian national independence. Ajete was a member of Ghana's World War II veterans who had marched to the seat of the British colonial government in Ghana to demand their end of service benefits. A white police officer either ordered or opened fire on the unarmed soldiers, killing three of them, including Sergeant Ajete. And those are your Black History Month and African History Facts for today, February 28th. That's it for this Wednesday, February 20th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming aboard with us this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barty, Washington, wishing that you will have a lovely day. Managing editor of Africa 54 TV show. Guinea's capital Conakry ground to a halt on Monday as workers, including miners, began a nationwide strike in the world's second largest producer of bauxite, seeking higher wages and other demands. Tune in on your local TV station at 1630 UTC. Straight Talk Africa. Two years after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the war continues to pose a threat to global security. How is Moscow funding this war? Why is it spreading disinformation? We'll also look at how Russia uses gold from Africa to fund its aggression. Join me, Heidi Adams, on the next Straight Talk Africa this Wednesday 